Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Mario Tomich. Uh, he is the CEO and co-founder of Tomich.com. He joins me today to discuss how to achieve your fitness goals, why consistency is more important than perfectionism, what the recipe for burnout is. Uh, a lot of us are grinding day to day and we're exhausted and we have no idea that we're burning ourselves out. So as, as much as we talk about, you know, the recipe for thriving and, and uh, you know, being successful and feeling alive, we also need to be aware of how we might be burning ourselves out. We also get into how to use failure to succeed. That's right. How do you use the failure, the losses to, uh, you know, continue forward, to continue to your goals and to your ideas. We even get into the type of protein shakes you should take, whether that's uh, plant-based or uh, whey. And Mario also discusses why he hates the phrase cheat meals. He has a different word he prefers. And so we get into all that and so much more. Uh, if you're like me and you know you struggle with that guilt shame cycle after you eat, <laughs> we even discuss uh, uh, how to address that and how to manage those. And really, what was interesting is Mario shared uh, why your diet should be boring. And this is, <laughs> you know, I'm always trying to spice things up uh, in the kitchen and, and keep it exciting. But but he changed my perspective on it. And, uh, and we even get into the real source of motivation. All those quotes uh, that you see posted on IG or on Jim Walls, they don't really serve uh, as a motivation, but we talk about what does and so much more, so much more. And I know uh, some people may be tuning in and wondering why we're discussing this in terms of uh, on a suicide prevention podcast. Because when we look at the research, so much of it is about feeling effective and feeling valued. And, and how do you give that to yourself? How do you receive that from others? And for a lot of people, food is one of those areas where uh, we struggle. We struggle with that uh, in this country. We struggle with it in my, in my family. Uh, we struggle with it in my household. And, and I struggle with it. And uh, it's a source of pain. It's a source of uh, excitement and joy. It's, uh, a lot of emotions are wrapped up in food. And we know that, uh, you know, anorexia, bulimia, all these different eating disorders uh, are also linked to suicidality. So uh, at, at the foundation, we're always about how do we take better care of ourselves, right? Whether it's physically, financially, emotionally, socially, relationally. So we want to cover all those things that, um, that, that make life worth living. And, and food and fitness is a part of that. So sit back, enjoy, and let's get into the episode. Uh, well, Mario, I'm excited to have you on. Um, you know, you're a fitness YouTuber or whatever, Almost two hundred thousand 
uh, subscribers uh, and over 20 million views on your video. Uh, you've personally helped thousands of people achieve their health, athletic performance, and physique goals. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you today because uh, so many you know, people have put on a quarantine 15. Um, uh, I myself am struggling with uh, quitting sugar or minimizing sugar. Uh, and eating more, um, you know, complex carbs and proteins and fats and all that mm -hmm. stuff that I clearly sound excited about. Um, I feel you. <laughs> and so when, when people are coming to you, what people, so many people struggling with food and, and there are people who are, you know, struggling with food in terms of just trying to lose weight. There are people who are struggling with anorexia, body dysmorphia, bulimia, so many uh, different things. What are people coming to you the most for? And how are you helping them navigate through that? So we work with entrepreneurs and professionals, very busy schedules. And most, I would say 95%, it's related to weight loss. The pandemic, as you mentioned as well, was, it was pretty rough. Most people gained 15, 20. We've seen upwards of about 30, 40 pounds. And it's not a combination of just, okay, I gained the weight because I stopped moving as much there's a lot of emotional things happening. There's a lot more stress. There's a lot more uncertainty. There's a lot more food available. If you used to go to the office, now you're at home and then just two minutes, a quick trip down the, the kitchen, come back, grab something, do that a couple of times a day, very easily adds up. So what we specialize in is that sustainable lifestyle change and really understanding these patterns of eating and then ultimately getting to a point when you can not just lose weight, but actually improve your body composition where you gain some lean muscle and then also make that change permanent, which I think is really what a lot of the quote unquote diet world uh, overlooks is the fact like what actually happens after the diet, you know, you can diet down, but what, what's going to happen long-term. So we really specialize in that behavior change aspect of this to sort of create a new identity and a new way of doing things because ultimately what, what got you to the goal, a, a version of that has to be there in order for you to keep that goal, right? So that, that's what we create that new set of habits and routines that you can just simply sustain moving forward. All right, Mario, I need you to write a book called What Happens After the Diet. That the is diet after York, the diet. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, a, that's a New York Times bestseller right there. What Happens because that's where people get stuck. That's where so many people get stuck. They, they, they lose the 10 pounds or they do the sober October or, or, or whatever. And then they have no idea what to do once the, once the, once the 12-week challenge is over. You know, like that's, then they just put it all right back on. We've seen this with uh, the biggest losers, et cetera, et cetera. To, to, to backtrack a little bit, when you talk about the, the emotional uh, uh, stressor uh, of contributing to people putting on a weight, what type of emotions are, are we talking about and how do you help people navigate through that? Yeah, it, it can really be a lot of different emotions because when we look at the brain, I mean, we're layered, right? So we have the quote unquote lizard side of things, very basic survival, heartbeat, not just normal functions that you would need, but then you have the mammalian side, which is a bit more rational. We're talking emotions, all of these things that make us human. And we also have the logical, rational side layered on top of that, which is sort of this thing when I want to set a goal, I want to reach the goal. And it would be very simple to live if we could just be that robot that can say, I'm going to lose 30 pounds, I'm going to lose, and you just follow the process and you're good to go. The, the issue becomes when you're dealing with a lot of different things in life at the same time. So you feel mental overwhelm, you might feel some boredom, you might feel some anxiety, 
you might feel some uncertainty. It might be related to lack of love, lack of connection, could be lack of significance. So, so you, you're at work, you don't feel like you're treated well, and then suddenly you come back home and you let it out on, on food. Because food is a very easy thing to go for because there is a, a soothing effect because eating does soothe what is known as the amygdala in your system, which would have you know, caused that stress response and go back to quote unquote that primal mode. So soothing that with alcohol, food, or pretty much all the other substances, I would rank food to do through that same mechanism, which ultimately is something that we don't really see as that, but it can become a, a sort of a medication for, for those stress responses. And then you get in this weird, weird feedback loop because it does work. I mean, it works temporarily. Obviously, it feels good while you're eating, but then an hour later, you feel terrible, which then causes that same guilt-shame cycle, which then continues building on itself. So what we really start with is building this awareness to realize that what's actually happening so what are you missing in life? And then you have a simple habit loop, right? You have the trigger, you have the action, you have the reward. And now you're trying to break that loop by experiencing the same triggers because you obviously will not stop feeling anxiety or stress or sadness or boredom. Those are just a part of life. But what action you anchor with that trigger is really the key because you can solve the problem of boredom in many different ways. It doesn't have to be a tub of Ben and Jerry's. It can be taking a walk, can be calling a friend, could be listening to a podcast, listening to some music, playing some guitar, taking up a new hobby, finding different ways to satisfy the same need that will then bring that reward with positive associations with that will anchor a new habit. So this is just a simple way to understand yourself and we ultimately have to fulfill the need in some way, right? You can't just ignore it. Obviously, that, that wouldn't work. Man, I, I love everything you're saying, you know, from, you know, last, the, I think last night or two nights ago, I, I was struggling and craving carbs and I uh, sat down and I journaled and then I uh, did some exercising and, and I remember thinking I need to have a different way of responding to my emotions because sometimes, uh, you know, I, I want to go grab some donuts or some pop tarts or et cetera, et cetera. And it's, so hard to do because the the habit um, isn't ingrained in me quite yet uh, to to respond in such a way. People talk about it takes you know ninety days to develop a habit, sixty days to develop a habit. How long does it take, or is this just really a lifelong? Like you just got really got to take it day by day. Yeah, there's a lot of conflicting data on. The, how long it takes to build a habit. Some simple ones you can definitely build and create some automation within 40 to 60 days. But if we're talking about a major change in the way you operate day to day, for example, stress management may take up to a year to learn how to manage that and to actually experience that automation. So the range can be really different. I mean, flossing compared to uh, taking up uh, a new sport. I mean, it takes a much, much more of an effort, mental capacity, bandwidth to be able to incorporate something as a part of your lifestyle. So we definitely don't want to underestimate the difficulty of change. I think a lot of people come into this and then obviously when motivation is high, change is easy. But we also have to understand that motivation comes and goes in waves. So when you reach that dip and that the motivation is out the window, maybe yeah, you can run on discipline for some time, but you will eventually run out of discipline as well. And so if you haven't been really smart about it, if you haven't taken it easy and systematically try to approach this thing, you're going to eventually end up burning out and falling back on track. Again, people regain weight and then feel really bad about that and blaming themselves. But ultimately, 
it's the fault of the system you've tried. It, it's, I mean, it's obviously your responsibility, but not necessarily your fault. There's a, a big difference between those two things. So I feel like with the whole habit approach, when you hear it's 66 days, people kind of expect, okay, day 67, this should be automated. <laughs> Honestly, it's never completely automated. I mean, at some point, if you, I've been doing this for 10 plus years, I've been staying between, I would say 10 and 15% body fat for the last 12 years. Yeah, sure. There's some automation, but do I have days when I'm also, okay, I'm not feeling like it today and I still go out there and, and do it? Yeah, of course. Like, I mean, nobody is really waking up and just jumping and eating broccoli. I still like Ben and Jerry's more than broccoli. We're just hardwired to appreciate the density of calories, the sugar, the fat, the salt, and all of that. So we want to understand what we're fighting here because some of these foods are engineered and put in millions and millions of dollars are invested in research to make the food as addictive as possible to bypass all of our defenses. And we kind of have to understand what we're fighting. So it's not just, it's not a fair fight. It's not like you're dealing with like a tiny little bit, but it's an entire system, an entire I would say ecosystem and environment, people live in, people hang out with. So there's a lot of aspects to this change. And as you mentioned, I mean, taking it day by day is a really smart approach because once you get into expectation management, that's really where you can start counting the days until the end of the diet, which ultimately is the wrong approach here. Because if you know that this is going to be done until the rest of your life, it just, there's a bit of a relief with that. You kind of have to figure out, okay, how can I make this happen rather than when is this going to end or what's going to happen afterwards? Right. You know, I, for me, that's what's helped me thinking about the fact that I want to live to a hundred and I go, well, okay, if I want to live to a hundred, what are the system strategies that I have to put in place to get me there? And I really love Mario. And, and, and if you could please drill down a little bit more where you say it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Will Smith had this, um, uh, thing he posted on IG, which he where he talked about that, but you said it, it's not your fault; it's the system's fault. But it is your responsibility uh, to respond to it in a way to help you achieve, you know, what what it is you want to achieve. Can you talk more about that, and and as it relates to food and nutrition? Absolutely. So my background is in software engineering, so I see this as an engineering problem. The way I see changing your lifestyle is a simple iteration. So you have iPhone one, it's a great iPhone for its time, but would you be able to use the iPhone one in 2021? Absolutely not. It would be garbage. It wouldn't be compatible. It would be too slow. So there's been a lot of iterations to get to the 12 that we have today, 14, whatever comes up. And this is really how you want to see the process of changing your lifestyle. It's going to go through different iterations. And the only way to actually create an iteration is from failure. It's from making mistakes. And that's really what your responsibility here is is to move away from blame and self-judgment and guilt into, okay, well, if my system has failed this weekend, what do I need to do to prepare that system to be more robust for the next weekend? There's a concept of anti-fragility, if you read uh, Nassim Taleb's work. So it's essentially, how can I create the, a better version of this to handle whatever is going to come in the future? And that iteration never stops. I'm still learning to this day. And we're lifelong learners. The cool thing about being human is that we have this neuroplasticity and unlimited potential. So we can actually keep adapting as long as we're in a growth mindset, as long as we don't get ourselves into that thought loop. So that's when I say it is your responsibility to create that system and to manage that system. And when I say fault, I mean, 
Is my fault that a few years ago, a guy went through a red light and hit me? No. Is it my responsibility to recover and take care of myself? Yes. Right. So there's two very different things at play there. And we have to kind of make that distinction here. I love about the cool about thing about fitness. It, it is, you know, it's science, but it's also art at the same time. I love the science part. I'm more of a logical guy. So I love to look at the data because the data doesn't lie. And when we start moving away from the emotional state into, okay, how much have I over it this weekend? Right. Let me log through that. Was it carbs? Was it fats? Was there a certain food that caused this whole weekend to go off the rails? Maybe there was a starting point that if I had a bit more mindfulness between that breakfast and the next meal, maybe I could have put a halt to it. And instead of wiping out the whole weekend, I could have stopped there because failing less or to a smaller magnitude is still massive progress. People don't realize this. They think it's a flip of a switch. So I'm, you know, I'm binging and then I'm not binging at all, or I'm overeating and I'm not overeating, but it's actually in iterations. So let's say you overeat 3000 calories in a habitual weekend. You go out to your body, sell a couple of drinks, turns out into a kebab at three in the morning. God knows what happens, right? Next weekend, let's say you skip the kebab, massive amount of progress. And by creating that positive feedback loop and those positive emotions, now you're actually speeding up the process of creating new habits versus constantly being guilt, shame, and blaming. You're really slowing down that process because you want to anchor the new, the change and moving the right direction with some positive association and positive emotion in order to create that new habit. And I feel like a lot of people, especially high performers that I deal with, entrepreneurs, professionals, it's never enough. We're so dopamine driven. We're always comparing ourselves to the full potential we could be one day. And I have this saying, you really can't be happy looking forward. No chance because there's always a gap. I mean, there's no way I could ever reach my full potential. Nobody can. Because I can be that perfectionist that has that tendency. So we will have to appreciate how far we come and what we're doing right now in order to really acknowledge our efforts. And then praising yourself for that effort is a really big step forward. My God, Mario, this is, this is so powerful, man. I'm taking so many notes as you're speaking. Just today, uh, I've been intentional about going for a walk without my headphones just so I can appreciate as you talk about the walk that I go on versus I'm going to go for a walk, then I'm going to do this, you know, going into that automatic pilot. And, you know, I, I, I noticed the birds singing and I noticed the color of the different trees and the plants. And I, I just, I, I felt the, the, the breeze on my skin. I, I just, I found myself really being able to take it in versus thinking, oh, I can listen to an audiobook while I go for a walk and I can make these phone calls and then send out these emails and and at no time ever really being present, just going, going, going. Are there daily habits that you practice? I, and I know, like you said, we're not robots, we're not locked in, but are there, there are things where you, you say, I, I need these to ground myself on a daily basis? Yeah, as I said, we're not robots, but I love routine. I'm a habitual person. I appreciate my routine a lot more ever since the whole pandemic thing. It, it's been... Um, a blessing for me actually as to travel a lot. I've been to about 56 countries. I traveled every three months for a long time. Then the pandemic hit and we just put a halt on that. So I found some new love and appreciation for just being in a routine and optimizing your environment. Uh, so getting up in the morning, having um, some water, getting out in the balcony, trying to get some sunlight to get the day started and just overall going through some gratitude and then actually planning out the day the night before, executing the day, knowing 
where things are around the house, staying in the same place, just huge value. I mean, most people underestimate how much value there is in that because you can anchor a lot of positive habits and positive behaviors to an environment. And think about it like this. When you travel, you go to a, you go down to Mexico to a hotel, things are just suddenly taking a lot longer and you're scrambling, where's my toothpaste? How is this whole thing where you spend 15 minutes on something that would take two minutes. So there's a lot of value in a routine. And we respond to routines really, really well. Now, the, the thing about the human mind is that it needs variety, but it also needs certainty. So if you give it too much variety, it causes a lot of stress. But if you give it too much certainty and too much structure, it lacks that rebelliousness and that variety. So we really have to be careful to leave some of that variety in the routine. But then I would say 80-20, kind of 80% really being on point with your day, planning it out, being deliberate, and then leaving that 20% maybe in the weekends or some parts where you can really go freestyle. You can do something new, go out, as you said, go out, just change the routine because you won't notice things around you until you break the habits. I think one of the biggest values of traveling so much for me was to actually get out of my habits and learn how to rebuild them in a new location. I started noticing small things, which I would have never noticed if I was in the same location over and over again. And then you feel like days fly by, weeks fly by, not everything is the same. So traveling to new places has definitely opened up my eyes to a lot of that stuff. But then being in one place has, I found new appreciation for the routine. Uh, I feel like we're, we're very complex um, beings when it comes to that. So going back to your original question, I love morning and evening routines. I think those are the two times of the day that we all kind of have more control. What happens in the middle of the day, pretty much for me, I, there's a lot of proactive, but there's all the all the reactive stuff as well. You know, there's clients, staff, you know, doing stuff like that. You, you're trying to really make it happen. Morning routine, the first hour is under control. I want to make sure that I'm dialed in, getting that sunlight, getting that water, getting a bit of movement, getting myself ready to go for the day. And then evening routine, super important, pre-bed ritual. For me, this is a game changer. I sleep nine hours a night. If I didn't sleep nine hours a night, there was zero chance I'll be able to keep up with all the stuff with my business as well as my fitness and everything else. Nine hours a night guarantees that I'm in top-notch energy throughout the entire day. I can be a machine for 12, 14 hours a day, no problem. That's nine hours a night. That's not what I do during the day. It's about how I fall in sleep, how I stay asleep, all the hygiene around that. And that's the pre-bed ritual. I write down my thoughts. I take a warm shower. I do a little, little bit of relaxation, do a bit of reading, and then slowly ease into sleep. And that's been a game changer, really. You know, to, I want to backtrack just a little bit because um, uh, earlier we were talking about, I, f- I forgot, oh, like exercise and developing habits. And one of the things that I've noticed is that um, if I train, if I overtrain or do too much cardio, it would ramp up my carb cravings. And so I was falling into this cycle of, you know, I'd be, I, you know, I'd take a spin class or go on a two, three hour hike. And then I would down like a, a massive acai bowl or, uh, you know, feeling like I deserved whatever I ate afterwards. Can you talk about um, int- moderate versus low versus high intensity? And is there a person, I, I found that like it also ramps up my anxiety to overtrain. So moderate exercise works for me and my temperament. And when I do things that get me too ramped up, uh, I just, I become undone a little bit. It's hard for me to recover. Can you talk Mm -hmm. about that? Really good observation. Uh, Your experience is in line with what happens uh, to a a certain percentage of people. There are certain people that 
higher intensity activity, high intensity interval training or certain classes, very intense CrossFit style work can blunt the appetite. Now others experience the exact opposite, which is the increase in appetite. I'm a really big fan of walking. So walking I would say for me replaces a lot of that stuff. I'm not a really big fan of high intensity intervals. I get my work with weights. So I prefer resistance training because of that muscle retention, muscle building, strength building, bone density, all that cool stuff. Plus layering on lots of walking. I'm a fan of 10,000 steps a day. I understand that you know, it might sound like a lot of steps for most people, depending on where you live, uh, location might not allow that, but there are, way, there are clever ways to get in that 10K steps. I would say anywhere between seven and 10,000 a day is a really good goal to have. And that covers your daily activity, which I would say is the basic for your health. And if you're sitting down all day, you really are missing out massively on how much progress you could make if you just started walking. But disregard weight training at all. If you just start walking, you'll see some massive differences in how much easier it is to lose weight, how much better you're sleeping at night, how much more focus you have, pretty much everything else. And then it doesn't also have that effect on your appetite. That's the cool thing about walking. It's just so under the radar that your body doesn't really feel like it's being depleted at all. So it can really enhance your productivity without any sort of expense on your recovery. And then with a lot of resistance training, when I say a lot, I mean, let's say four or five sessions, you'd be really hitting the sweet spot there. So I'm not a big fan of those hyper intense things because they, they really don't have much of a benefit outside of the diet has to do majority work if you want to lose body fat or stay lean. So doing a ton of high intensity interval, unless that's your sport, unless you really need that performance, I can see the reason for pursuing those types of activities. Now, some cardio, so some moderate steady state, either cycling or something that's less injurious, running is not my favorite because there's simply a lot of impact as you hit the floor every single time. Lots of people carry injuries. At least majority of my clients, I mean, once you get in your 40s, 50s, 60s, you carry some stuff and running is not really the ideal activity that we pursue. So we mostly do cycling or certain things like that. Throwing in a bit of that, anywhere between 90 to 120 minutes per week, really creates this optimal balance between you got some cardio, you got some resistance, you got lots of walking. So healthy lifestyle, I mean, that's pretty much those three have you covered in terms of that. Love that. At the beginning of the episode, you talked about how a lot of your clients are, uh, you know, executives, CEOs, you know, these are, these are type A personalities. Typically these are high achievers And, and they're also, they also tend to be perfectionists. And what I found with perfectionists is, you know, as you mentioned that uh, failing less uh, is still progress. And, and for perfectionists, to fail at all is, uh, is, is a catastrophe. Uh, it's, it's, it's the end of the world. And, you know, they, they fall into that blame and shame uh, type of cycle. And, we, you know, that we also know that perfectionism, especially in men, uh, when that facade is broken, um, it, it can really... Un, undo them and uh and there's a high correlation with suicidality how how do you coach your your clients through failure through struggle through those you know when that facade is broken really good question you actually discovered what's the, one of the biggest obstacles to consistency is that perfection's tendency that we have and it, my clients have noticed that there's a much higher percentage about 80 I would say 85% of people we work with, so 80 out of 100 people we work with will have a tendency to be all or nothing or black and white. So have that dichotomous way of thinking. So if you have 
one cookie that then suddenly means that is over. You're going to have the whole bag. Then the whole bag leads to a pizza that day that leads to a couple of drinks that leads and bam, before you know it, Monday comes around, you just blow the whole weekend and three, four weeks of progress. You feel super bad about that. And that would be that all or nothing perfectionist tendency. Uh, we, we emphasize first and foremost to build awareness of that. If you have that tendency to, again, bring awareness, bring to that, understand yourself, because if you know that you're fighting that, then you at least know who, what the enemy is. If you're kind of clueless about it and you're just blaming yourself, well, you're in trouble. So we bring awareness to that. And then we teach the ability to switch from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset and understand that you can actually change that. So it's not something that's a trait that is just completely fixed and out of your control. Now, you can't completely change some of these things. I mean, there are some wiring there that's been around for a long time, maybe with enough effort. I really believe in human potential. You can change anything if you put in decades of work, but... If you get to that point, you start building some awareness. And then what we teach is this mantra, consistency over perfection, right? At the end of the day, you have to think which behaviors you currently have are sustainable, which ones are not. Is perfectionism all or nothing thinking sustainable? Clearly isn't, right? There's just no way you'll be able to sustain that indefinitely. And we are very clear in in our coaching programs, it's not about whether you're going to fail, it's a matter of when. And that's the key. It's just simply accepting the fact that you will fail. And it doesn't matter, you know, when it happens, it will happen for sure. And then we go back to that iteration that I mentioned earlier. So when you do fail, it's what the relationship is that you have with your failure. And the mindset you have is your shield against failure. Because the mindset you have, it's sort of the operating system. Imagine, you know, you have a couple different operating systems and you have the operating system that has failure that sees it as a learning opportunity. And then there's the other operating system that sees failure as a chance that you never try this thing again. Because we do have something called the habenula, which is a counter for failure in our brains that if you fail enough times, it actually registers that failure in your mind. And then it doesn't want you to do that again. It actually regulates your motivation to try again. So if you have individuals that have failed over and over and over again, it's more not objectively failing, but it's their interpretation that they failed. So it doesn't even have to be objective failure, just enough that they can interpret that as a failure, which is a really big distinction. And so if you have individuals that try 30 different diets and they come and they have that fixed mindset, the first layer is to get them to a growth mindset because no matter what diet you give someone, eventually they're, they're gonna fall off or make some mistake. So unless they're in a growth mindset that we can see that mistake as an opportunity to improve the system, they're gonna lose. Right, so this is the way we we manage to transition individuals that haven't been able to be consistent with anything to really start seeing those little slip ups as more like white noise in the long run, and that shift there, that new identity, that new way of viewing things, the mantra of consistency over perfection, works like magic once you really embody that and and allow that to work for you, and that we found to be the key. You you've often mentioned growth mindset. And I've, I've read part of the book, Growth Mindset. And th- th- when I hear it, it gives me a little anxiety because I keep thinking, I have to keep growing this thing. Like I have to do this forever. And I'm like, doesn't everything cap out? And so can you talk to me about how you view the growth mindset and how do we frame it in, in a way so that it's, it's flexible and it's not this idea of, we're just going to, you know, because when I think of a growth mindset, I think of it literally as in, all right, if I lost five pounds or two pounds this week, I can lose 
two pounds next week and I can just keep losing weight. I can just keep going in the direction that I'm going. But I have a feeling like that's not what you're really saying about growth mindset. Mm-hmm. You're correct. That's, that's, abs- that's not what growth mindset ultimately would come down to. I, I think this is where definitions do matter because if you see the growth mindset as something putting pressure on you to continuously perform better and higher feeds and push it to a higher, higher level, you're kind of missing the point. The purpose of the growth mindset there is simply to allow change to occur. Because one of the big issues that we found is that if you come from a fixed perspective, you think that certain things are innate. You think that they're fixed. Your personality is the way it is. You're who you are. And then there's that story you tell yourself why you can't do it that then becomes the reason for next time's failure. So you essentially end up in a self-fulfilling prophecy, coming into it with a negative bias, which ultimately is what happens in the, in the diet world with a lot of people because they've tried certain things in a certain way and then they don't even give the next thing a fair chance because they're coming from a perspective, okay, this is, this is probably going to fail. And of course, if you come from that perspective, you stop trying. I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even call it a growth mindset as much as sort of like staying in effort mindset. So you're simply willing to continuously apply yourself and allow that to happen over time. And you just have that confidence that you will figure it out. That's the key really. And it's not so much about intensity because intensity really doesn't matter as much as consistency. We all know that. I mean, if you aren't a competitor, if you're not planning on stepping on stage and being at 6% body fat, I don't see a reason why you would be rushing something here. I mean, is there a deadline? Do you matter? Does it matter if you're in shape in six months or seven or eight months or 10 months? I mean, does it really, I mean, it's good to have deadlines. They're great for motivation, but think about it. Will you 10 years from now even remember that it took you eight months instead of six? And six is a recipe for burnout and you're going to drop off and feel super bad. Eight might have been just a really perfect sweet spot with enough of speed to motivate you and enough of that sustainability as well. So I'm a big fan of deadlines, but I also have to understand that switching sort of from performance mindset to a bit more of a a growth mindset is the key because the performance mindset is that the performance mindset is let's look at data, right? Let's just data track this, how fast we need to go with 20 pounds. Let's divide it into weeks. Let's hit all the numbers. That's all perfect. Right. But that just misses the point because you can't be in that performance mode all the time. It, It life isn't predictable as that. You can't just do this in isolation. There are other factors coming in place. So this is where I, I really go back to the iteration that if you're doing, take it week by week and try to really improve. If you see a big fault in the system, try to make it so that the next week's system is version 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4. And the change will automatically happen. Even if you don't have a goal, I mean, you should have goals, but even if you don't have a goal, if you're doing the right actions, you're moving toward that goal anyway. So I'm a really big Uh, on process orientation. So I'm a really big uh, proponent of that. Just really dial in, worry about where you are on the road. So analogy of driving a car. If you're driving from New York to LA, are you going to be that person that's when I'm going to get there, when I'm going to get there, when I'm going to, and you're stuck in your head instead of driving the car properly, making sure in the right path and making sure you're not driving too fast or too slow, which should be your primary concern because you're going to get there anyway. It's like being a person stuck on the airplane. You're flying from, I don't know, from London to Australia and you're nagging the, 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 the flight attendant. When are we going to get there? When are you going to get there? But look, just enjoy the ride, right? If you're on the right path, you're going to get there anyway. And there's no amount of nagging that was going to get you there faster. 
You just got to do what you got to do. And I feel like that takes a lot of the pressure away at the end of the day. Man, Mario, so, so many nuggets. Um, right now, you know, intermittent, because you, you, we talked so much about diets. And so I want to drill down and get a bit more specific. People are doing, uh, you know, the intermittent fasting, the keto diet. It sounds like you're very flexible and you are more client-centered in terms of what you're prescribing to your clients or collaborating uh, with your clients on. Can you talk to us about intermittent fasting and keto diets and things like that and, uh, and what your perspective is on those? Really good question because I think we're all different in a sense of what we're going to find to be restrictive, what we're going to find to be less restrictive. My goal with every client is to find a way that will allow them, if the goal is fat loss, of course, is to how do they stay in a calorie deficit, get enough protein, how do they get a healthy diet that hits the not just the macros, the micros, and basically is an overall unprocessed whole foods-based diet that they find the least restrictive. And that can be different. Now, some people... Keto works perfectly fine for them. And there's some distinction between sort of moderators and abstainers. Some people just really prefer to abstain from certain things and they find that work for them. So that would be, look at someone who can't moderate alcohol, like myself. I can't moderate alcohol. I know that when I stop drinking, that's it. That's a decision that I've made for the rest of my life and that's good. Never going to drink again. Now, other people perfectly fine at having one drink or having a little bit of chocolate or a little bit of this and that. I'm not that type of person. So for me, I do respond better to rules and having clear guidelines. Fasting is one of those things as well, because you have some clear guidelines, you know, okay, there's no food until noon. My last meal is at before eight and that's it. And it gives you some certainty of how the day is going to go. So you plan around that. So I feel like the structural benefits of it, it really are the primary thing as well as obviously keeping, helping you stay in a calorie deficit, having and the meals compressed in a tighter window as well. Most people aren't that hungry when they wake up. And actually removing food from early in the morning will eventually make you not be hungry in the morning, which is a big benefit because you're just hungry less times a day. If you take someone eating seven meals a day, which I would find very unsustainable for most people, you're just going to be hungry seven times a day because you have ghrelin, which is a hunger hormone that gets strained based on your habitual eating patterns. So if you're eating six, seven meals a day, you're hungry six, seven meals a day because your body's literally expecting food to come at that time. If you go intermittent fasting, you say, I'm going to eat two, three meals a day. Well, you're going to be hungry two, three times a day, which is much, much easier to deal with. And those meals are bigger. So they fulfill you more. You get actually more options and you can move around. And it's also fitting to the lifestyle because most of the things that actually get us off track usually happen in the evening. So if you sort of put those calories a little bit later in the day, that is a really, really helpful thing because that's where most people slip off. Most people are not going to slip off in the morning. They're going to do that in the afternoon, after work, in the evening. And the whole keto, non-keto, I mean, at the end of the day, look, calories and protein, if they're controlled, and if you eat a whole healthy and processed diet, you're going to lose weight, whether that's with keto or not. We have clients doing keto. We have clients doing low carb. We have clients doing vegan, paleo. We have clients doing vegetarian. We have clients doing more of a omnivorous approach. All of those work as long as they're heavily based on unprocessed healthy plants. So lots of plant-based foods, so lots of vegetables and, and, and things of that nature. Fruits, less on keto, but on the other diets, yes. And then if you're getting enough protein, all the other stuff, we can argue all day here, but there's not, no, no data showing that any of those other approaches is more superior than, than one. So it really comes down to the individual. 
and what the person can stick with and not just short term, but what do they see is worth investing into long term. So all the people following keto, perfectly fine. But do you see yourself doing that for the rest of your life? That's the real question. Because if you're investing in this asset, and when I say asset, I mean these set of habits, and you want to get those habits to appreciate for your long term, is that worth the investment in keto? Or should you more find something that's a little bit more flexible for you that has a degree, I would say, of structure and flexibility that you can stick with long term? Because that's, I think... For most people, what they want, they want the structure in place, but they also want to have some flexibility from time to time so they can have a pizza on Friday with their kids. Because then I found that to be actually a big obstacle for most clients who are in keto is that it really requires you to live a totally different lifestyle. And it is a lifestyle and most of them really can't see themselves doing it long term. Yeah, I think that's the part that is unfortunately missing from the conversation on food is a social aspect. You know, food is, 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 is memory, it's nostalgia, it's, it's connection. It's, you know, especially if you're, you know, working with CEOs and execs and, you know, a lot of decisions and meetings are held in restaurants and late night and after hours and, you know, on a golf course and uh, over meals and, you know, come over, meet the wife, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, you really do have to figure out how to be flexible and what works um, uh, for your lifestyle. Um, my other question then is, uh, cheat meals, uh, I guess two parts. One, do you believe in cheat meals as it is? And two, when I talk to my friends about cheat meals, I, I express it to them in a way of it's an opportunity not to eat pizza and burgers and like the lowest common denominator foods or, you know, pop tarts, which I love by the way, but, um, but an opportunity to to expand the, your palate of what you have been traditionally eating through the week. So like if I am keto, you know, Monday through Friday, then a cheat meal for me could be uh, pasta at a five-star restaurant. You know, like it, it's not something that's so off the record and an opportunity to regress, but an opportunity to learn about different foods other than what you've been eating. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what do you absolutely makes sense? Yeah. Uh, so I, I just don't like the word cheat uh, because it feels like you're doing something wrong or something nasty. <laughs> In reality, you're just eating a little bit of pasta. I mean, it's not going to be some a big deal. Right. So if you're having, so there's a couple different ways to approach this. So some people love the, you know, the five days a week structured and the weekend a little bit more flexible. That's kind of what I'm talking about earlier with 80, 20 or 90, 10. So if 90% of your meals are just top notch structured and you have 10%, a bit more processed or a little bit of outside of that range, um, keto, Monday to Friday, then weekends. The only downside I would see to doing this on keto and then going out of keto would be that you have to re-enter keto and would really throw off your numbers. If you're tracking your weight, you would then replenish glycogen. You would gather a bunch of water weight. So it would really skew your data for a few days until you get back to normal and you kind of re-enter that. Overall, if your calorie balance is okay and your protein is okay, you're fine. Like the, the, there's nothing against this that you would that you would feel like there would impact your progress. But mentally, though, on a psychological level, when you see the scale four or five pounds higher on Sunday or Monday, that can get to you. So knowing to expect that, I think, is the key to understand that. Okay, I didn't gain five pounds of fat because my calories were good. 
And that requires good calorie control, of course, and good planning. And you're, you're solid. A cheat meal, how I see most people see it as a free pass, like I'm just going to eat whatever. And then that ends up being a 7,000 calorie binge. Well, of course, then you're going to put on body fat and destroy the deficit for a week, and then you're going to have trouble. So I don't, I'm not against the concept. I really do believe that there is a, there's that rebelliousness and that right that we all need. Because if you're chicken, broccoli, and rice all day, I mean, it's a matter of time. I mean, they're, they're robots. I work with a lot of clients that we, we actually kind of have the internal saying like robots, which whatever you tell them, they're just going to do it, right? But most people aren't like that. So most people need a bit of flexibility. And I'm personally a big fan of flexibility. And for me, I prefer to go eat out once or twice a week where I have more like a free meal, I would call it, not a cheat meal, more like a free meal. And my Monday to Friday is pretty much set because I don't have time to play around with recipes and do all this fancy stuff. I'm busy. I mean, I, my day is planned out from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed, more or less. I don't have time to play around with special things or trying to entertain myself with food. For me, food is fuel Monday to Friday. And then it's fuel for most of the weekend as well. But then there's that date, I'm going to go with my girlfriend, we're going to take something really nice. And then I'm going to go and try out some different things. So I feel like that structure for most people will fit their lifestyles as well. And obviously numbers have to align so calories, macros, all that other stuff, but it's a really sustainable way of looking at it. And I do like the balance between entertainment and fuel, because if you're, all your food is entertainment and you just eat for pleasure, you're, you're in trouble, right? Because as you progress through a fat loss phase, let's say you start at 200, your goal is 160, you can get away with a lot of pleasure and entertainment type of eating in the beginning. But as your food drive goes up, as you lose body fat, you're going to find yourself having a much, much, much harder time staying in a calorie deficit or controlling the intake. There are going to be a lot more slip-ups. And so as you progress through the diet, you want to make your diet a little bit more boring just because it's easier. It's not a matter of can you lose it or weight or not. And I feel like a lot of people, as they progress through the diet, they try to make the diet more interesting. So they try to add all these artificial sweeteners, all these like little gadgets, things, recipes, cool little treats that they just figured out low calorie. But then look, you can, you can binge on quest bars. You can binge on chicken. I mean, you can binge on anything. I mean, as long as it's motivating enough and his food drive is high enough. So there's a really big rationale for keeping things simple to, to some degree. And then you will really appreciate when you have that free meal. Like I really do enjoy, I mean, when I go out for sushi once a week and I'm at tail end of my diet at you know, 8% body fat, Man, I love every single ounce of everything that I eat. I really appreciate food. I think someone who hasn't dieted to a low body fat, they don't appreciate food. Honestly, it's really hard to appreciate it at you know 20% plus body fat. It just tastes amazing. Even basic things like a red pepper, like red bell peppers, 6% body fat, all in, right? And that's just weird to say, but that there's some value in that as well. You really learn to be grateful for pretty much anything at that level because all food is amazing at that point. Earlier, you talked about uh, a car accident, and I couldn't tell if if it, you were just anecdotally speaking, or if you were in a car accident, um, and you know somebody ran a red light. Is is that what happened? Yeah, yeah, that was a few years ago. Yeah, and what were what was the injuries from that? Nothing. I got hit in the in the door where where I was driving. It, it hit me literally to my door. Where I was I was a driver right in front of it came out like nothing happened. I mean, I don't know if it's years of training or whatever. I mean, nothing. 
Like I came out totally fine. Uh, I was really mad and pissed off for because <laughs> you obviously would be as well. It's our normal reaction, but then um, I kind of took it as also again some things that went well that day. I was just thinking, well, thank God that I was not. You know, if I was a little bit faster. Or if he was a little bit slower, might have ended up in, in being a, a huge, huge issue. So we kind of, you know, just settled for that good lesson. And, and now I'm careful, even if I'm going through a green, I'm just looking around and seeing, okay, am I good here? So what got you in, into coaching, you know, so many people and, 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 and building, you know, the, the business that you've built? What, what, what was the genesis of all this? And so I mentioned earlier that I started as a software engineer. And so I was really overweight. I was a World of Warcraft addict. I mean, I was a gaming nerd, as nerdy as you can imagine, overweight, 30, 40 pounds. Life was at a down. I didn't invest anything in personal development. Honestly, if someone gave me a book 15 years ago, I would, I would just throw it back at them. I wouldn't even know what to do. I haven't read anything. I just didn't really feel like that was me. And then I started changing my identity. I discovered exercise. I discovered personal development. I really felt like it, it made a huge difference in my life. And then this or the passion for it and eventually led to me developing a blog for it eventually became a business. And we decided to go into coaching because I love seeing the direct um, results of my work. And it's just someone who isn't a coach can't appreciate how much it really helps you to see your clients get results. It's incredible. It's something that you're basically saving people's lives. I see people that drop 40, 50 pounds in our programs of 60 pounds. Man, it's just a different person. And it's not just them. It's their families now. It's their communities. It's this ripple effect, especially when you're, let's say, in charge of a company. And then people see you as, an, as a role model leader. And then you're just being around there, being just the best version of yourself. It's just been incredible. I, I can't stress enough how much coaching versus some other ways people these days try to run their business with courses and things like that. And I have nothing against that. I think whatever you know works for you, e-commerce, all this other stuff. But with coaching, you really get to see some incredible work. And plus, you get to see how people are different because individualization and fitness is what's missing. We, we got sort of the general concepts. Like if you watch any of my YouTube videos, I'll tell you, go in a calorie deficit, eat enough protein, you know, get the resistance training, do some walking, do some cardio. You're going to hear the same advice over and over and over again, but those are all general concepts. But how do you apply them as an individual in your unique lifestyle with your unique genetics and your unique response? That's what coaching really is for. And we found that to be an incredible experience and just a blessing. Honestly, I don't even think of it as work, even though I work probably a lot more than most people. I don't take time off, barely any. I, I just don't see it as work. I mean, I'll do this anyway. So it's a really cool blend of things that I love to do, which is teaching, coaching, mentoring, and learning about this whole thing and pushing myself and others. At the same time, it, we found it to be a really nice way to differentiate because everybody else is talking about these books and courses and all this nonsense. We just look, if you want to work with someone, if you want to work with a real human who can actually help you out who cares to help you out? This is this is where it's at. And how can they find you, Mario? Plug all your things. Yeah, the easiest place actually just go on YouTube. If you type in my name, Mario T O M I C, I got a channel, lots of videos up there. Some of the concepts that I talk about here, you will definitely learn a ton more about that. And just my website, tomic.com, T O M I C.com. You can see some cool stuff there, client results, my stories, some reading lists, some book recommendations that should be enough. And some of the stuff, if you resonates with you, then you're going to love the more of the content that's on there. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you, you think is important for people who are 
struggling with, um, you know, the just getting healthier, you know, for that, for that, that world of Warcraft player right now, who is, you know, 50 or a hundred pounds overweight. 